So according to uh, my sermon notes, this is the 15th sermon in the series on the wilderness, which is a pretty long series. This is the longest series I've done so far. And, uh, and we've got three more sermons coming in the series after this. Um, so we're going to wrap it up at the end of the summer, and then we'll do something else in the fall as we kick off. And I've known for a while what the last three sermons are going to be. It'll be Psalm 90 on God's providence. It'll be Psalm 91. And then it'll be, um, what do we make of the fact that the generation that came out of Egypt, in, in, in the book of Numbers especially, falls in the wilderness and doesn't enter the promised land? Isn't ultimately the wilderness a depressing story? And to think through how the wilderness story leaves us ultimately with not just a, a challenge, but also with hope. And so we'll do that in the weeks to come but today we're going to look at and you probably have noticed it in some of the songs we have sung every song we've sung has had this theme and in the three scripture passages we read we're going to look at this theme of of temptation and of how god tests his people today and and there is a sense in which it's not much of an overstatement not much of an exaggeration to say that this entire series on thinking about the wilderness um and i'll come back and i'll just do a little recap in a second but in a sense you could almost summarize the goal of this entire four months or so in which we spent in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus and the Psalms thinking about Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, all of it as a way of learning how to pray the Lord's Prayer. One of the things I've said over and over and over again is that the Lord's Prayer is not a prayer you pray when you're a slave in Egypt. And it's not a prayer you're going to pray when you're in the promised land. It's a prayer that you pray in the wilderness. Every single line makes sense in the wilderness. And we have looked at um, forgive us our sins as we forgive other people their sins. We have looked at give us this day our daily bread. We have looked at putting God's purposes and God's desires first and saying no to our own secondary desires. And today there's a sense in which the entire sermon is going to lead up to when you pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. What are you asking for? What ought you to be asking for? The entire sermon is ultimately about that, that this is a theme that Israel learned in the wilderness. Throughout this series, there have been three themes that, that we continue to come back to. One is that the idea is that the wilderness is not a metaphor for a particularly hard season in your life when things were challenging, when you felt dry spiritually. It is the entire Christian life from beginning to end. It is the best season of your life. It is the worst season of life. If you are a Christian, from the day you became a Christian or were baptized to the day that we enter into the promised land, whether because Jesus comes back or more likely that we die and we enter into his presence, that that entire experience is in the wilderness. In that sense, the wilderness is typical. We always are in the wilderness as the church, as Christians. A second one is that the wilderness is not just a negative place, even though you might think that sometimes. The wilderness is a place both of danger, for sure, but also grace. That the wilderness is a mixed experience. We experience God's faithfulness, but also a lot of temptation. Um, and so the the wilderness is the place of danger and it's a place of grace. And then finally, the wilderness is a lens through which we can look at the rest of the Christian life and learn about it. And today we're going to do all of that with this theme of temptation and testing. If you have ever read the Bible at all, you probably know that the theme of being tempted by Satan or by sin or by the world or being tested by God, and those themes are very, very, very related, even though they're distinct, is a theme that shows up throughout scripture. It appears in Genesis. It appears Here's in Revelation, and there's not a section of scripture where being tested and being tempted doesn't show up. And yet it is a theme that is especially associated with Israel in the wilderness, and then it expands from there. And so I encourage you, if you have that Deuteronomy passage open, you can keep your finger there, but turn back a couple of books to Exodus. Let's just trace this really quick. A, a name that if you were on our um, Bible study Zoom call this past Wednesday night, 
we read a letter to discuss by John Newton, who is probably most famous for writing a really famous hymn called Amazing Grace. And I want you to listen to a line in Amazing Grace. We're not going to sing it today. We'll sing it another time. We're going to listen to a line that you've probably sung a number of times, but I want you to hear it and to really slow down and think about it. Newton writes, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. If you're a Christian, you can look back and know there have already been challenges. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That he's emphasizing that, that being tried, being tempted, going through hard things is a very normal part of life in the wilderness. And as soon as Israel enters the wilderness, I want you to turn to Exodus 15. They have literally just crossed through the Red Sea. This is the moment they stop being slaves. Now they are God's people. They're going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness until basically you get to the book of Joshua. It's going to be most of the Torah, most of the Pentateuch. And yet the very first thing that happens in Exodus 15, starting in verses 22, they've actually crossed the Red Sea. They're not in Egypt anymore. And they begin to grumble because for three days, their first three days in the wilderness, they find no water. They immediately are suspicious of God. They are immediately grumbling. And in chapter 15, starting in verse 25 in the second half, it says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. First thing God does in the wilderness is he tests them. Now, one of the points that we're going to make a little later on is that there's this inverse, asymmetrical relationship that God often tests his people, and that is always seen as a good thing, as counterintuitive that is, and yet we are never allowed to test God. And so throughout the wilderness, it's not just that God is often testing them, it's that they are often testing God. The first is always seen as appropriate. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. The second always is inappropriate. Jump ahead to the next chapter, chapter 16. Starting in verse two, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, the opposite of gratitude, the opposite of trust, the opposite of faith. And the people of Israel said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord back when we were slaves in Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is one of dozens of moments when Israel is so deceived, so broken. And this is a picture of us where they say, remember how amazing it was when we were slaves? Man, those were the good old days. Remember how great Egypt was, guys? Which, of course, is delusion. That is delusion. And so verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven. This is the first scene where manna appears, which will appear daily for the next 40 years. When we pray in the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That's a manna prayer. Don't give us everything we want. Just give us what we need so that we can be faithful today. And the Lord is about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day so that I, the Lord, may test them to see whether they will walk in my law or not. God is testing his people. Chapter 15 with the water, chapter 15 with the manna. Just jump ahead to the next chapter. Look how it turns. Starting in verse one of chapter 17, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. According to the commandment of the Lord, the camp that were feed them, there was no water for the people to drink. Now, that's something that just moments ago in chapter 15, they had already encountered. God was faithful. They got the water they needed. Ten minutes later, they run into the same scenario and they grumble again. 
because they don't trust that God will do what he's supposed to. And in verse two, therefore, the people quarreled or grumbled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why are you testing the Lord? Now notice, whereas God testing them is clearly seen as a good thing, in chapter 15 and chapter 16, this is seen as an epically disastrous, foolish thing. In chapter 17, that we would respond by trying to test the Lord to see if he will show up and be faithful. Um, Going down to verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. If you were here at the beginning of the service, you heard those two place names in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 mentions these two places. One means testing. The other means grumbling because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because there they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's the essence of testing God. Basically saying, God, I'm not so sure you're faithful. I'm not so sure you're going to do what you say. Show up, and then I'll believe in you. Then I'll trust you. That's the essence of testing God. Jump ahead to chapter 20. One last passage in Exodus. This is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are given at Mount Sinai. And the very first thing that happens after the Ten Commandments are finished in verse 17 is this in verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, Sinai is a pretty impressive experience. The people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And then Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you so that the fear of him may be before you. There's one of those great paradoxical moments in scripture. Don't be afraid. God is testing you so that you might be afraid of him. Don't, don't, don't fear. God is testing you so that you might learn to fear him. There's a sense in which we do not fear. There's a sense in which we fear and we learn that distinction through being tested by God, which itself is so that you may not sin. Jump ahead two books. This will be our last um, just reminder of this to Numbers. In Numbers 14, which we looked at, I believe, last week, this is the climactic act of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. They've been rebelling for years, and this is the final time where God's patience finally runs out, and he declares, the generation that came out of Egypt as slaves will not enter into the promised land, but except for Caleb and Joshua, including Moses, including Aaron, including Miriam, they're going to fall in the wilderness and die there. And in chapter 14 of Numbers, again, the the, the kind of essence of what Israel, the people of God are doing wrong is in verse 22, that we're told, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice. That's a summary of Exodus 15. That's the first one, all the way to Numbers 14. What did Israel do wrong? They tested God. They tested God. They tested God. They tested God 10 times. And finally, they don't enter the promised land. And so you see in the wilderness theme, and then you go on. You you can jump back. Genesis 22, God, when God calls Abraham to offer Isaac up on Mount Moriah, we'll, we'll come to that theme another day in the future, Lord willing. The first verse of Genesis 22, it says, the Lord tested Abraham. 
That's the that's the summary of that story. Joseph in the second half of Genesis is tested by God. That's all Psalm 78 summarizes Joseph's story. David is constantly tested by God. Many of David's Psalms even say, Lord, test me and try me. See that my heart is devoted to you. He actually invites it. And of course, Agnes read this for us. Jesus's ministry starts by being tempted for 40 days, not just anywhere, but in the wilderness by Satan. And if you noticed in Matthew 4, it's easy to miss, Jesus is tempted three times by Satan. He not only responds in faithfulness, he does not test God, he trusts God, he obeys God, but all three times he responds with scripture and, and Satan opens with scripture towards him. And all three scripture passages that summarize the three temptations come from Deuteronomy. They come from the wilderness. They're all about Jesus going through the same temptations that Israel did, and yet not testing God the way that Israel did. And then throughout the New Testament, it continues to reverberate. Whatever Jesus accomplished, he did not bring about a scenario where we don't have to be tempted. We are still tempted as Israel was, and yet he's opened up a way that we can be faithful in the midst of that rather than test God like Israel did in the wilderness. In the New Testament, if you want to get into this theme, we just don't have time today to look at much of this, but if you want to get into it, there's three documents at the end of the New Testament that especially focus on temptation and trials and testing, Hebrews James and First Peter. Those three documents revolve around this theme, and I would commend them to you in the future. And then finally, one last one, and then we'll get into it. It is not a canonical book. Both Jews and Christians do not consider it inspired, but it's an interesting book. We can say that. It's called Ben Sirach. It was probably written about two centuries before Jesus. It's a Jewish book, and both Jews and Christians have often cited it over the years. They, both communities agree it's not inspired, but it's a wisdom document kind of like Proverbs, kind of like um, Ecclesiastes. And at the beginning of Ben Sirach, here's the beginning of chapter two, which is the body letter. Here's how it starts. And it's kind of a summary of the whole book. My child, when you come to serve the Lord, prepare yourself to be tested. My child, when you come to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for testing. This is part of following Jesus. This is part of what it means to belong to God, to go through testing, to be tempted. And so I'm going to make three points about temptation, about trial, but let me just first define on a base level what we're talking about when we call something a temptation or a trial. For something to be a temptation or a trial, at the very least, I think two things have to be involved. One, your desire. You never go through temptation. You never enter into a trial in which you are completely indifferent to what happens and to what's at stake. Desire is very obviously connected to the temptation and the trial. The James passage that uh, that Victor read for us, very clear, that no one, when you're being tempted, should say, God is making me do evil, but instead should notice that first desire is conceived, and then it leads you in the wrong direction. And then once you go in the wrong direction, then there are consequences. But temptation is all about desire. And I would say second, simply having a desire for something doesn't mean that you're going through temptation. Simply having being passionate about something doesn't mean you're going through a trial. And so here's the second thing is that a fork in the road comes in which you can go left and get what you want, or you can go right and obey God. And you can't do both at the same time. That's a temptation. That's a trial. Now that can happen positively. I could get this if I'm willing to disobey God, or it could be even though I'm willing apart from this to obey God, I lose something I desire 
And now I am tempted whether I'm going to continue to trust God or not, because I've now lost something. So a temptation, a trial, it can be positive, it can be negative, it can come. One of the points James makes is that there are many different kinds of temptations. There are many different kinds of trials. Helen and I had dinner with some dear friends the other night, and, and one of our good friends, Anna, who's the National Director of Discipleship for InterVarsity, she's a very wise woman. She made an observation, she made a comment, and she was just talking about her two daughters, who are like eight and 10. But I just thought it's so true for us as in general as human beings. Is she said, I'm learning as they get older, that they are good observers of their experience, but not good interpreters of their experience. They are good observers of their experience. They notice what's going on. They know how they feel, but they're not good interpreters of their experience. And a lot of what the wilderness is about is learning to re-narrate, to reinterpret our experience and specifically left to ourselves, both because of the world and our own selfishness, we tend to, if we're left to our default setting, to interpret our lives primarily by, am I getting what I want or not? Am I happy or am I not? Are my dreams coming true? or not? Are my plans progressing, or are they being hindered, or not? Now, you can narrate your story that way if you want. You can interpret your experience that way, but Israel is taught to interpret their experience primarily by, am I being faithful to God in tests and temptations, or not? That's a very different way to interpret your experience. It's a very different category to bring to it. Scott Haifman likes to say that faith, that obedience is just faith when it goes public. Disobedience is just unbelief going public. And temptation, trials are a moment when either your faith or your lack of faith have to go public. They can't just stay private and internal anymore. By the way, if you want to get to know the theme of temptation in trials better, which you should, if you're a Christian, one of the things you should do at some point is read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. You'll get a good sense for the variety of temptations that are out there. It is so subtle. It is so nuanced how we are tempted. One way to think about temptation, or actually, here's a couple of ways not to think about temptation if you're a Christian. This is, I think, the most Oscar Wilde quote that Oscar Wilde ever wrote or said. If you know who Oscar Wilde was, you'll know what I mean. He says this as a point of advice. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to give in to it. That's the most Oscar Wilde quote of all time, I think. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to give in to it. Now, that's not. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, the opposite. He says this, no human being knows how bad he or she is until they have tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people don't even know what temptation means. They're just so good. They just always want to do what they're supposed to. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation actually know how strong it is. After all, you fight, you find out the strength of an opposing army by actually fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to run into it, not by lying down or going inside. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes, thank you, Mr. Oscar Wilde, that's you. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. <laughs> simply does not know what it would be like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, actually know very little about badness. That's a theme that C.S. Lewis often brings out. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in, just always choosing what they want right away. We never find out the strength of the evil inside us until we try to resist it and fight us. And Jesus, because he was the only human being who never yielded to temptation, it's one of the great themes of the, of the epistle of Hebrews, that he was tempted like we are in every way with one difference, he never sinned. 
He never gave in. He never compromised. Jesus, because he was the only human who never yielded to temptation, is also the only human in the history of the world who knows to the full what temptation actually entails. He is the only complete realist. And I think that's what it is. And so you have Oscar Wilde saying given. You have Johnny Depp in, uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean. If you remember this scene, there's a scene where, uh, where the Kieran Knightley character, because he's just, he's such a flake. He's so self-centered. He's always so unfaithful and compromised. And she says, there will come a moment when you will have a chance to show it and to do the right thing. And responds, I love moments like those. I like to wave at them as they pass by. Um, that's another way that you could respond to. I could do the right thing or I could do what I want, but that's a moment of temptation. Final thing, and then we'll get into uh, into what temptation looks like. One way to think about temptation is the wilderness is often translated as the desert, the desert. And if you know anything about the desert, there are always mirages in the desert. It's easy to hallucinate in the desert. It's easy to think if I just got this, I'd be happy. If this happened, then everything would be okay. It is easy to fall prey to what the scriptures are often calling the deceitfulness of sin, the fleeting pleasures of sin, and you get what you want. And then like Israel, two days later, you're grumbling again. Three days later, it's a crisis again. And so there are a lot of mirages in the wilderness, and we need to be ready for them. Charles Spurgeon, an old Baptist pastor in London in the 19th century, says that here's one thing you always know as you get older, if your eyes are open, if you're awake, then nobody looks back over the course of their life as a Christian and says, you know, when I grew the most you know when I became the human being that God created and redeemed me to be? Those seasons where I got everything I wanted, where everything was easy, where I could just coast, where it was just really fun to wake up and be excited about what was going on. Nobody grows in seasons like that. Anybody who looks back says it was the seasons of testing. It was the seasons of challenge. It was the seasons where I had to go against the grain of what I wanted and against the grain of what I wanted my life to look like that I actually grew. One of, we did this one just a few weeks ago. One of, I think, the most taken out of context verses in all of scripture is Romans 8, 28. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if you read that verse in context, the good is not the American dream. It's not what you bring and say, Lord, if, if I love you and I'm called to go to your purpose, you're going to you're going to bring this about. Right. Even though there's going to be roadblocks. The good is being conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. Everything that happens, good and bad, hard and easy is moving towards that end. And so here's three points that, that I want us to learn from Israel in the wilderness about temptation, about trial. The first is this. I'm using these, these terms together, but in a distinct way. Temptation has a kind of subjective orientation. Temptation is more focused on how you experience it. Now, if you are asked to do the right thing, but it's actually what you want to do, it's actually what you delight in, that's not a temptation. But if you're asked to get out of bed at six in the morning and you'd rather just hit the Zoom button, the, uh, the snooze button 17 times, that's a temptation to go back to sleep. It's a temptation to not study, but to just watch Netflix. It's a temptation to not show up for your job, but to just coast or to do whatever. A temptation is your subjective experience of a situation. A trial is an objective description of what it actually is. So they're related, but they're distinct. And so here's my first point. Every temptation is a trial and every trial is a temptation, but vice versa. That is, every moment that you are tempted subjectively is a moment when God is objectively testing you. 
Every moment you are being tested by God is a moment when you are being tempted. That's one of the points James makes in James 1. On the one hand, know that God brings us into trials. That's a big theme in scripture. He tests us in order to shape us, in order that we might become perfect and complete, full, mature, and yet we're also warm. Don't say when you're being tempted, God is tempting me. The temptation comes from you, from your own desires, even though the test comes from God. That is just another way in which there is both grace and danger in the wilderness. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10, which is a passage we have looked at a dozen times in the last four months, when Paul works through the stories of Israel in the wilderness, and he draws two deductions at the end, one negative, one positive, one warning, one promise. The warning is, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We are all vulnerable in the face of temptation. We are all able to make shipwreck of our faith. Be aware, which is why the primary thing scripture says about temptation is flee, run from it. Don't play with it. Don't think that you're stronger than you are. Flee from temptation. But on the other hand, the very next verse says, on the other hand, don't despair. Don't be overwhelmed. No temptation will ever come by your way that it, one, is not common to all human beings, and two, that God will not enable a way to be faithful in the midst of it, a way for you to escape it without compromising your faith. There's both grace and danger in the wilderness. Every trial is a temptation. Every temptation is a test, which means that this is another theme where you get this great theme in scripture coming to the surface, which is that God means something for good that somebody else means for bad. A temptation is meant by Satan for evil. It's meant by the world for evil. It is usually when we give in, it's usually meant for evil by us. And yet God at the same moment in the same situation means it for good. In Calvin's commentary on the Lord's Prayer, you know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He makes this famous comment. God tests in one way, Satan in another. Satan tempts so that he may destroy, condemn, confound, cast down, but God tests so that by proving his own children, he may make trial of their sincerity and establish their strength by exercising it so that he may mortify, purify, and cauterize the flesh. Cauterize the flesh. It's a great image, which unless we were forced under this restraint, we would play the wanton fool and vaunt ourselves before measure. What he's pointing out is, have you ever met a kid who got everything he or she wanted in their childhood, really privileged childhood? They're almost always total brats. They're almost always somebody who always gets what they want is somebody who's going to be insufferable. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody who goes through hard times is necessarily going to be a good person, but it's a prerequisite to being good. It's a prerequisite to being what God wants us to be. So here's something about testing and about temptation I want you to notice is God does not test us because he's curious about what's going to happen. God doesn't need to test us to cognitively know what's in our hearts, to know what's going to be the outcome. And, and, and here's, it's always, especially in public schools in America, it's always a complaint, and, and understandably so, that the American education system has really foolish testing protocols that, that, that we test in very foolish ways. And one of the ways you can tell the difference between a good test and a bad test, a pointless test, or even a counterproductive test, and a good, a wise test, is that a test is not there for the teacher, it's there for the students. 
It's not there to inform the teacher of something they wouldn't otherwise know. It is actually a part of the process by which the student learns. Actually, part of the process by which the student is formed into something here. Whenever you take a bunch of tests and it's like, this is so arbitrary. This is so pointless. We're just wasting our time just to go through the motions. That's not a good test. But if the test actually helps you become a better doctor, actually helps you become a better mathematician, actually helps you become a better pastor, I had to take a lot of tests in grad school, then it's a good test. God tests his people in order not that he might learn something, but that we might learn something. And if you read Deut- if you heard Joseph read Deuteronomy 8, what's one of the reasons God tests his people in the wilderness? So that we might learn that human beings do not live by bread alone. All of us as a starting point in life would be absolutely okay with getting what we want and just resting in that. We actually do think if I just get this and this and this and this, I'm going to be happy. And God tests us so that we might realize that's actually not true. We do not live by bread alone. We do not live just on our physical desires. And this is why that God is forming, he is shaping, he is preparing his people in the wilderness through tests that we can do something very paradoxical. I would guess that for most of us, this is certainly true for me, this is one of the hardest commands in scripture. James 1 said it explicitly. 1 Peter 1 says it. Romans 5 says it, which is that you should rejoice in your trials that you should rejoice when you are tempted. Now, a temptation, a a trial, by definition, is deeply unpleasant. By definition, it goes against the grain, which is why I don't want to go too far the other direction. First Peter even says, even though you are grieved by various trials, there is a sense in which any joy we have is in the midst of sorrow. Any rejoicing is in the midst of also lamenting. But nonetheless, if you experience a challenge to your faith, If you experience, this is what I want, but oh, God is calling me to do that, that part of your response to that should be expectation. Part of your response to that is, this is an opportunity for me to grow. This is an opportunity for me to become someone that I can't be without. This This is an opportunity for me to taste God's grace. This is an opportunity for me to go deeper into what my destiny is as a human being who's going to bear God's image fully. We are meant to rejoice in the midst of our temptations, because we are gaining something from them if we respond in faith. There's a really famous quote by Henry James, an old um, novelist and an old writer, from an essay called The Art of Fiction. And I'll, I'll read this twice. It's a bit abstract, but, but you'll hear what he means in a second. He says this about stories, about literature, about fiction. What is character but the determination of incident? What is incident but the illustration of character. It's a really famous line from Henry James. What he's talking about is that character development and plot development go together. If you ever see a story where it's just character development, but there's no plot, the story is missing something. If you ever see a story in a lot of movies today, are like this, it's all plot, but it's no character development. You don't even care about the characters at the end of the story. Something is missing. What he's pointing out is that plot serves character development. Now, here's something that I think is probably true of all of us, apart from the grace of God. We don't care whether our character is developed or not, as long as the plot goes the way we want it to go. But the plot serves our character development. Our character development itself then becomes part of the plot so that we can be the people God wants us to be in the world. But here is something that I think is deeply intuitive for all fallen human beings, which is that you think the circumstances of your life are more important than the person you're becoming. But that's actually not true. 
the person you are becoming is infinitely more important than the circumstances around you. That plot ultimately serves character development. And so that's the first point, that all trials are tests, all, te all temptations are trials and vice versa. And God tests us, we are tempted so that we might grow. But here's the second thing, and I've already mentioned this, but I want to flesh this out a bit, that you should expect, you should, you should not just submit to, you should even with expectation, in some sense, rejoice in, as an opportunity, seasons of trial, experiences of temptation, receiving with joy God's tests of you, and having an eye for noticing where they are. We'll talk about that in a minute, but here's what you must never do. You must never think that you have the freedom to test God. God is allowed to test you you are not allowed to test him. Now, let me just acknowledge that rubs a lot of us the wrong way. That's where it begins to smell of maybe either unfairness or, for instance, you ever run into a human being who does that? I'm allowed to do this, but you're not allowed to do this to me. Immediately you get a sense of, oh, this is unfair. This is toxic. Or at the very least, maybe it smells like it's arbitrary. God's allowed to test us, but we're not allowed to test him. Now, a lot of Christians, I think, root that, and it's true for sure, and in the distinction between creator and creature. And I think that's helpful. It is true. Part of the reason God is allowed to test us and we are not allowed to test him is he is our creator and we are his creatures. So a child who is tested by their parents to grow and then turns around and says, why am I not allowed to test mom and dad? Doesn't understand the relationship. A, a med student who turns around to their doctor professor who's won a Nobel laureate and says, well, now you got to take step two. Doesn't know what's going on, right? Uh, somebody who's an apprentice on day one and is apprenticing under a master of this trade or that trade and says, well, now I get to test you, doesn't understand what's going on. But even there, nonetheless, you can kind of hear it. Here's the main reason God can test us and we cannot test him. His faithfulness has already been proven. Ours has not. It's not an arbitrary claim. If you are ever tempted to test God, to say, God, I'll trust you. I'll obey you if, and then you throw a stone down the road into the future and say, if you show up like this, or if you do this, here's the mistake you're making. You're asking him to do something he's already done a million times. If you are tempted to test God, what you do is not throw out a branch into the future and hope that he shows up in the way you want. You look back at his track record and you remember. God has already demonstrated his faithfulness to Israel. Israel has not yet. The people of God have not yet demonstrated their faithfulness to God. Romans 8, 31 and 32, this great logic. If God has already done the most costly, difficult thing in the history of the world, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How we, will he not with him freely give us every other thing we need? If you are tempted to test God, you are forgetting the story you're in. You're forgetting what's already happened. There's a scene in the Gospel of John where Jesus does the feeding of the 5,000. It's this amazing sign. It's this amazing miracle. And the Pharisees, like five minutes later, are like, so Jesus, are you going to show us a sign or not? And it's like, did, did, did you not? Guys, I, I just, I did that. And the whole point is that's what we're doing when we test God that we're asking him to do things that he has already done relentlessly and repetitively throughout history. It is not up in the air whether God is faithful or not. It is up in the air whether we will be faithful or not. We need to learn to be faithful. There's an old saying, an old cliche, that every culture in the history of the world understands and gets to some degree, which is that there is no substitute for experience. 
You can have exactly the right theology. You can have the best intentions of the world, but you need the experience of coming to the fork in the road where you want this, but God asks this, and where you choose God over yourself. If you don't have that experience, then we're not going to be faithful people. This is why C.S. Lewis says, and this is one of Lewis's big themes, every time you make a choice, and by the way, this is why I think in scripture, every moment understood rightly is a trial. Every moment is a test. Some seasons are more of a trial, more of a test, but ultimately every moment, all of life is a test. C.S. Lewis says, every time you make a choice, you are turning that central part of you, of who you are, into something that was a little different from what it was before you chose. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing of who you are, either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with neighbor and with itself, or else into one that is in a real state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures, and even finally with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other kind of person means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at every moment of our lives is progressing to the one state or the other. That's what the wilderness is about. One of the things that I, I, I want to be careful in the way I say this, because it does need to be nuanced. It's not, it's not a, a statement without danger, but just like a good wise parent with their kid when their kid is young, one of the things you realize as you get older as a Christian is that God is far less interested in our short-term happiness than we would like him to be. It's that God is far less interested in our immediate gratification and the mood we're in right now than we would like him to be. And he is far more committed to us becoming the people we are supposed to be. One of the themes that I have relentlessly come back to time and again in the series is that if you look at a map of North Africa and the ancient Middle East, in Egypt, it does not take anywhere close to 40 years to get from Egypt to the Jordan River. It doesn't take 40 weeks. The reason it's so slow is because the wilderness is school. It's because the wilderness is about becoming people who can actually inhabit the promised land rightly. John Newton, who we um, quoted earlier, um, there's a, a, a great hymn by him in the bulletin that we'll read at the end of the sermon. He says in one of his letters, I have, and this is him as an old man, and, and I would love for each of us to get to this place where we can see this and say it as genuinely as he is here. He says, I have reason to praise God for my trials, because most probably I would have been ruined without them. I've prayed, I've reason to praise God for my trials, because most probably I would be an insufferable human being without them. I wouldn't trust God. I wouldn't keep covenant with my neighbor. Um, there is, and I'm going to get to this um, last point here in a second. There's, there's a guy that some of you have maybe heard of. He's, he's older now. He used to be more well-known in the Christian community named Tony Campolo. He's an interesting guy. And I remember hearing him say this once, and it's always stayed with me, that for all of the differences between different human cultures, and you see those in a million ways, one of the ways you see the difference between different human cultures is parenting philosophy. For instance, I grew up in a really probably typical Northeastern liberal white family where my parents' parenting philosophy kind of came down to, we just want you to be happy when you grow up. We just want you to be happy. Like, yeah, try not to be a serial killer, but other than that, we just want you to be happy when you grow up. Other cultures, it's we want you to be successful. 
We want you to be successful, or we want you to make a lot of money, or we want you to bring honor to the family, or we want you to be influential and to have a lot of power so that you're never vulnerable like we used to be. And those are all differences. And Tony Campolo says, but for all their differences, they're all self-centered. They're all self-centered. And he says, you know what? No family left to itself, no culture left to itself has ever done is, you know what I want my kids to be when they're older? Righteous. I'm going to be faithful. I want them to keep covenant with God and with their neighbor. I want them to leave the place, the world a better place. And actually, not just say that, but actually mean that. To actually raise them that way. And I want them to contribute to the flourishing of God's purposes in the world. And that's what this is about. God tests us that we might become people like that. And so the third and final point is this. Grab it real quick. All over the place here with my notes. Sorry about that. The first one was every temptation is a trial. Every trial is a temptation. The third one is this, is that the, the purpose of testing, and, and this is something, I don't think Grace John is with us today. She's unfortunately about to go to San Diego. We're going to miss her a lot. Grace and I had a conversation. Grace, if you're listening to this later on, sorry, I didn't even tell her I was going to mention this. We had a conversation of, but this whole wilderness, theme, it was bothering her in a good way. And she said, so, so what you're saying is that life is just preparation for the life to come. And that's in the title of the sermon, that the wilderness is preparation for the promised land. It's not something to be seen for its own sake. It's, it's preparation for the promised land. And I said, yes. And her instinct, understandably, was, doesn't that, doesn't that demean and water down the significance of life if it's just preparation for the life to come? And, and my response was, no more than the fact that dating is just preparation for marriage waters down the significance of dating. In fact, dating is significant because it prepares you for marriage. The reason med school is significant is because it prepares you to be a doctor. The reason childhood is significant is because it prepares you for adulthood. Not only does it not evacuate those seasons of their meaning, it gives them their meaning. And we are in the wilderness, not the promised land, which means this is about a time of preparation of becoming the people that God wants us to be. And so here's how I want to conclude. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What exactly are we asking for? And there are, not strangely, but, but if you ever want to dig into it, you can. I'm not going to do it today. There are a lot of different interpretations of what we're asking for when we pray that. I'm going to just break down a couple, but all for this reason. There's one interpretation that I want to convince you it cannot mean. Lead us not into temptation cannot mean, God, keep me away from anything that's ever challenging. Keep me away from anything that would make me choose you over what I want. God, make my life easy. Let me coast. God, keep me from struggle. Keep me from difficulty. It cannot, cannot cannot mean that because God actively tests his people. He is not committed to that. God, make the road as easy and as enjoyable as possible all the way to their promised land. That cannot be what it means. I think it means one of two things, and ultimately they, they both end up in the same place. It either means, God, keep us not from temptation per se, but from giving in to temptation. Keep us from being led into temptation in the sense of being compromised by it. Equip us, empower us so that we would be faithful in it. Or, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, keep us from temptations that would be too much for us. 
keep us from seasons where we would be so overwhelmed by the difficulty that we would compromise our faith. But whichever one of those you think it is, here's the significance. Here's why they both come to the same place. What we are praying for when we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is we are not praying for an easy life. We are praying for a faithful life. We are not praying for an easy life. We are praying for a faithful life. We are not trying to avoid suffering. We are trying to avoid sin. And ultimately, whether you are willing to avoid suffering by sinning or sinning by suffering is what many of these tests are ultimately about. This is about resistance. About God, keep us from actually becoming worse in the wilderness than we were before. Help us to become the people we are supposed to be. And so in your bulletin, I want you to turn to the last page or at the very least the end. I'm just going to read this to end. Um, it is not a, a, as well known a hymn as Amazing Grace, but this is a big theme in John Newton's life. And here is, you could almost consider it a poem. It was set to music several times, but let's, let's read this to, to end. And then I'm going to encourage you to just meditate on this in the days and weeks to come. John Newton, as an older Christian, looks back on his life and says, here's what I was praying for early on. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love in every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered that prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Straight from Egypt, right into the promised land, no wilderness in between. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. I had to look up blasted my gourds, blast my gourds, what? There's an old English translation where at the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah has the tree that grows up that shades him, and he's more concerned about shade from the sun than he is about the well-being of Nineveh. He's a terrible human being at the time. And God blasts the gourd and he throws a pity party. That noon is saying, this is what the trials are, is I'm more worried about shade from the sun than the needs of God and then my neighbor in the world. And God blasted my gourds time and time again and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. Remember I mentioned a few minutes ago, our friend Anna, we're good observers of our experience. We're not good interpreters of our experience. That last paragraph, there's a great one for interpreting your experience. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and to break your schemes of earthly joy, all of which don't need God to happen, that you may find your all in me. That's ultimately what tests and temptations are about. And that is what life in the wilderness is about, becoming the people we're supposed to be for the promised land later on. And so let's pray that we would be a people who are not led into temptation, but are delivered and rescued from evil. Let's pray.